Well, hello again, Tony Payne here. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. I'm recording this one early in the morning on a Wednesday before I head over to campus at the University of New South Wales to do some some ministry over there. And I was on campus just last week doing some teaching on apologetics with some students. And as we milled around outside afterwards, one of the students bowled up and asked a really thoughtful question. He said, why is it that contemporary apologetics mostly focuses on the two approaches to apologetics that enjoy the least biblical support and have the most risks attached? Why do we do that? Well, to understand that question, you need a bit of background. The presentation I'd been giving was based on an essay that I rolled out on The Painful Truth in two parts last year called Seven Types of Apologetics. And if you go over to the website, painfultruth.online, you can check that out. But as a refresher, or to save you reading it all from scratch, here's a quick summary. I basically argued that in the varied and rich world of contemporary apologetics and evangelistic persuasion generally, The word apologetics gets thrown around pretty loosely, so much so that it's possible to identify seven different kinds of persuasion or argument that might have the label apologetics slapped on them these days. And they were as follows. Firstly, gospel persuasion. That's the arguments and evidence and reasoning that we employ when we're actually explaining the gospel of Jesus, when we're talking about his death and resurrection, it might be evidence, for example, that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. That's the first type. Type number two is gospel objections. When we've just explained the gospel, people often ask questions and have objections and raise different issues. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Or I not sure I believe that we're all sinners and rebels against God, and so on. And so we answer these objections to the gospel itself. But then there's a third type, which I call preemptive objections, type three. That is, before we even get to talking about the gospel and about Jesus and his death and resurrection, we often address the general objections people have to God and Christianity, things like, Why does a good God allow suffering? Or hasn't science disproved the Bible? Or why is Christianity so anti-women or so anti-gay and so on? So that's preemptive objections, number three. Number four is building confidence, that is building Christian confidence. One function or type of apologetics is really bolstering the confidence of Christians by providing answers and reasons for their doubts, and for many of the objections and questions that society throws at us. So that's number four. Number five, way down the other end of the spectrum, is God talk and life, is how I describe it. That is, way back when we're just engaging with someone or with a friend at the very beginning of our relationship, or when they are only just discovering that we're even Christian, the way we talk and behave in everyday life often opens up and commends the gospel in a kind of Colossians 4, 5 and 6 kind of way, where we live good lives, wise lives before outsiders and have opportunities to answer and to speak to them on the basis of what we think and say and do. So that's God, talk and life, number five. Number six, positive reasons. This kind of apologetics 
puts forward positive arguments for the truth or attractiveness of the Christian faith. They might be some version of the classic proofs of God's existence. They might be arguments that start with people's inherent desires and aspirations and show that Christianity fulfills them. Or they might seek to present the positive goodness of Christianity as a worldview in the most reasonable and attractive way to get some traction with the modern secular person. That's number six, positive reasons. And then there's number seven, which I call critique. Rather than providing a defense or an apology, an apologia for Christianity, this form of persuasion points out the inconsistencies and dysfunctions in the Christian worldview. It goes more on the offensive. The Greek word is categoria rather than apologia. It critiques or accuses the world rather than answering the objections of the world. And Paul's speech in Acts 17 is a classic case in point. So there are the seven types of apologetics. Number one, gospel persuasion. Number two, objections to that gospel. Number three, preemptively answering objections. Number four, building Christian confidence. Number five, God talk and God life. Number six, positive reasons, positive apologetics. And number seven, critique or categoria. Now, in my presentation on campus, I argue that we find many of these types of persuasion or apologetics in Scripture itself, in the example and instructions of the apostles. In particular, we find obviously gospel persuasion, we find the answering of gospel objections, we find a building of Christian confidence and a, an assuaging of Christian doubts, we find God talk and life, and we find critique or categoria. And I suggested that these were the ones that we should also focus on in our own evangelism and persuasion. But types three and six, that is preemptively answering people's objections, preemptive objections, and positive apologetics, positive reasons for Christianity, are not only difficult to find in the New Testament, but they have some considerable risks attached to them. The preemptive objections approach to apologetics puts us on the back foot right at the outset. And it often gives too much credence to the validity or genuineness of these general objections. And the positive reasons strategy often seeks to frame or reframe Christianity in terms that are attractive to the prevailing secular mind and thereby risks distorting the counterintuitive, offensive sort of nature of the gospel. And unfortunately, it is precisely these two latter types, types three and six, preemptive objections and positive apologetics or positive reasons, that tend to dominate the field of contemporary apologetics and persuasion. Hence the question that the thoughtful student asked me, how has this come to be the case? Why do we end up focusing on the two apologetic approaches that seem to have the least to commend them? Now, in answer, I made a few vague stuttering remarks about the trends of modern thought and our temptation to give the world too much credit and our lack of belief in the power of the gospel itself and how everything pretty much has gone to pot since the Enlightenment and so on. All no doubt true, but a bit incoherent and unsatisfactory. But then, a few days later, in the slow process of moving some books around at home, slow process because I always keep stopping to browse through all my old favourites, I came across Graham Goldsworthy's 
underappreciated but marvellous book, Gospel-Centred Hermeneutics. It's not a light read, I guess with a name like Gospel-Centred Hermeneutics, it's not likely to be, but it's full of gold. And I remembered and managed to find again this passage on page 60. Goldsworthy says, Sinful thinking is snake-think, the kind of noetic rebellion proposed by the serpent in Eden. It's diametrically opposed to the mind renewed by the gospel. At this point, we can say that the godless presuppositions underlying the temptation and fall in Genesis 3 include the following. If God is there, he does not communicate the truth. Secondly, we do not need God to reveal the rational framework for understanding reality. And thirdly, human reason is autonomous and the ultimate arbiter of truth and falsity, right and wrong. In essence, these presuppositions are those of the secular mind that were given such sophisticated expression in the philosophies of the Enlightenment. Now, I hope you were able to follow that. I'm not going to read it again. In fact, it's one of those posts where you might be better off going across and looking at the text version and mulling over the profundity of that quote. It contains some fancy words. Noetic rebellion. There's a phrase you would only hear spoken in the halls of academe. Noetic simply means to do with the mind. It's from the Greek word nous, meaning mind or understanding. And why we can't just say mental as opposed to noetic, I'm not sure, but I digress. At one level, I guess you could say Goldsworthy's point is one that you've probably heard in many sermons before on Genesis 3 and the fall. That the sin and the fall of Adam involved a false set of assumptions and beliefs about God. That even if he's there, we can't trust him and don't need him. That we can gain wisdom and truth on our own terms. And that we can become like God ourselves as self-legislating judges of what is true and good. It's very possible you've heard a sermon like that on Genesis 3. But Goldsworthy's insight is that this ancient primal snake-think, as he calls it, is precisely the way we think today. It's precisely the program of the Enlightenment and the foundation of modern thought. The Enlightenment, if you're not sure what that is, was the humanistic project beginning in Western culture in the late 17th century that sought to cast off the dark, dim understanding of our forefathers who relied on God and his revelation to understand and to undergird their understanding of the world. The Enlightenment thinkers wanted to see if we could figure it out for ourselves without an answer coming to us from outside, from God or the church. Could knowledge and truth and morality and all the rest be found by following our own reason and instincts and experience. Surely yes, said the Enlightenment, and proceeded to try to do so. Fast forward to today, and we're the inheritors of several centuries of what Goldsworthy calls very sophisticated snake-think. That progress, the progress of the Enlightenment, has been anything but smooth. In fact, the postmodern movement was basically the realisation by people that the assumptions of the Enlightenment were a bit too optimistic and self-defeating. But all the same, even if postmodern thinkers are a bit less confident about our ability to figure everything out for ourselves, the basic 
serpentine assumptions remain. It's as old as Adam. If there's any rationality or truth or goodness or morality to be found, we'll find it ourselves. It will be discovered or created by us on our terms, through our reason and experience. And so anything that's put forward in our culture, any proposal, any idea, whether Christian or otherwise, is supposed to accept these ground rules. The truth or falsity of something, its rightness or wrongness, its goodness or badness, its usefulness or otherwise, can only be established on terms decided by us. In our rebellious world, our noetically rebellious world if you like, human reason and experience and tradition occupy the bench as judge, if we might use a courtroom sort of metaphor. And if Christianity wishes to argue for itself, it needs to take its place in the dock like everybody else and defend itself. It needs to answer the judge's objections and questions. It needs to show itself good and reasonable according to our current autonomous standards of reason and experience. And this is where Goldsworthy's insight helps answer my students' question about the focus of so much contemporary apologetics. We find it very easy to focus on these two apologetic strategies. Number three, preemptive objections, and number six, positive reasons, because they fit so neatly within the dominant thought patterns of our whole culture, the gravitational pull of which is very hard to escape. We've grown up with it. We've grown up with snake think, if you like. It's the air we breathe. We find it almost impossible to imagine a scenario in which human reason and experience are not the judge and arbiter of everything. By long habit, we assume that Christianity's normal position is in the dock, cap in hand, seeking to fend off the secular world's objections and allegations and hoping to provide at least some attractive, compelling reasons that might satisfy the judge or at least make him regard us less negatively. But you can see the problem. By adopting or emphasising these apologetic strategies, we choose to work within the framework of the noetic rebellion of our culture. We implicitly accept the ground rules of snake think and hope that we can somehow persuade the judge to think better of us and the gospel, or even to accept the truth of our claim. But this has two real and fairly obvious downsides. Firstly, it doesn't and cannot work. The judge of human reason will never be satisfied by the arguments and claims of the gospel, that's the genuine gospel, because to do so would require a total reversal and upending of the whole system. To accept the gospel claim would require the judge to lay down his gavel, to take off his robe, to humbly enter the dock himself and plead guilty to rebelling against the true creator, lord and judge of the world. And what human judge is going to do that? But secondly, it leads us to change our message. We craft our arguments and persuasion to appeal to snakethink. That is, to a human set of standards and rationalities and aspirations and tastes that are all shot through with rebellion against God. The gospel is the opposite of this. It shames worldly wisdom and refuses to be known by it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. 
It's hard to see how we could use these apologetic approaches at any depth or for any length of time without it changing our gospel proclamation for the worse. The great news, though, of course, as Goldsworthy goes on to explain, is that the gospel provides not only a profound critique of snake think, but a wonderful redemption from it. The simple old gospel is powerfully effective because it addresses the simple old problem, which also happens to be the simple modern problem, and that's rebellion against God, the God who created us and who's our Lord. Gospel persuasion is accusatory and liberating rather than defensive or apologetic because it calls on all people everywhere to leave behind their rebellion, including their noetic rebellion, and to turn back to the only wise God. That, after all, is how Paul approached the Athenian sophisticates in Acts 17. Rather than adopting a defensive stance, as if he and his message were on trial and needing to be justified, he gives quite a devastating critique of the Athenian idolatry and folly and ignorance, and he puts them in the dock before God, who is the judge of the world. You may remember his speech concludes with these words, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, surely you may say gospel persuasion can't be as simple as that. Won't people laugh at such a message? Well, some will, as they did in Athens. But by the grace and power of God, others will say, as they did in Athens all those centuries ago, we will hear you again about this. Well, Graham Goldsworthy's point in the passage I quoted earlier is relevant for so many other things as well. He makes it in the context of hermeneutics, that is, how we read and interpret and apply the text of the Bible. And he argues that Christ is the centre and key of the Scriptures, and thus the centre and key for all human knowledge and human interpretation. And so his argument is really relevant for how we think about nearly everything because it diagnoses the problem that besets all human knowledge in every human culture of every age and its solution. The Christ-centred message of the Bible explains us to ourselves, no matter who or where or when we are. We don't need sophisticated cultural analysis to understand the truly important problems of humanity and their solution. In fact, our cultural analysis will always be compromised by snake-think. It will always misunderstand the true nature of ourselves and of the world because it's predicated on a rejection of the God who created the world. As I said, Goldsworthy's book, Gospel-Centred Hermeneutics, is no light read, but let me recommend it again. It's very much worth digging into. Well, that's about it for this week on The Painful Truth. A reminder about the Centre for Christian Living event on deception that I'm speaking at in a few weeks' time on August the 24th. It's at Moore College and you can attend in person or come along via live stream if you don't want to travel into Newtown. These events, I've discovered, are really great for small groups especially to take a week off from the normal round of Bible study and to consider a biblical topic. 
in this instance, deception and how the Sermon on the Mount addresses that topic. Whether you want to attend in person or watch on live stream, all the details of how to register and what you need to do are at the CCL website, the Centre for Christian Living website. That's ccl.more.edu.au and I look forward to seeing some of you there. Well, thanks again for being with me this week on The Painful Truth. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.